Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail Dorto Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go for high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And uh, now we're going over some basic science, and we hope you all have been enjoying this so far. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button. And if you haven't yet, please go and leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, however you listen to us. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PRN personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, Nailed It Ortho in the How Did You Hear About Us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Some other uh, medications uh, are uh, like raloxifene. And uh, what is raloxifene? What does it do? That is a CIRM, um, uh, which reduces osteoclast activity. So just remember that from uh, medical school. And CIRM stands for Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulator. So CIRM is going to be what raloxifene is. It reduces osteoclast activity. Um, so that is another um, one of the medications that you should just have in your tool and know about because it'll be asked or it'll be a, one of the answer choices and you can say not that one. Uh, going forward, what is denosumab? Uh, so denosumab is a monoclonal antibody, as noted by the MAB at the end of its name, stands for monoclonal antibody. And it's an antibody to rank ligand. And what it does is it prevents rank activation and it uh, inhibits the formation and, and activation of uh, osteoclasts. And as we talked about before, it's uh, rank ligand is secreted by osteoblasts and that's what helps activate osteoclasts. So if you are able to bind to rank ligand, you prevent that rank activation on osteoclasts. And when you prevent activation of osteoclasts, you have less bone uh, destruction. Um, and also denosumab is used for giant cell tumors, um, which is more up, up my alley, but uh, <laughs> uh, something we'll cover when we talk about uh, the tumor section and giant cell tumors. Uh, so keep denosumab uh, in your mind as a rank ligand uh, monoclonal antibody. Um, and we, we've talked about it before, but you can give exogenous calcitonin, and I believe it comes from salmon, um, if I'm not wrong. Oh, really? what, is, yeah. what is an exogenous calcitonin? Yeah, so that that is, um, you know, that's going to be something that's going to decrease your, your sclerostin uh, levels, which we, we spoke uh 
in depth about um, previously. And um, just a, a quick a quick reminder of what sclerostin does. It, it limits that bone formation via that Wnt pathway antagonism. Um, so sclerostin again, sclerostin as well as DKK uh, are going to be inhibitors of that Wnt beta cancinine pathway. Um, so just if you, if you want if you want to listen in or get a little bit more detail of what sclerostin does, go back and listen to our our first episode, I believe, in in uh, in basic science. But that is what calcitonin does. It inhibits sclerostin formation. So uh, moving forward, how does how do bone mets play a role in bone resorption? Yeah, so this is kind of, uh, it's different than the oncogenic uh, osteomalacia that you were talking about earlier, that is more from the benign tumors, but the metastatic tumors, the uh, more aggressive tumors, they actually cause an increase in the rank ligand uh, release. And they actually, these the bone, the metastatic cells themselves generate the rank ligand rather than the osteoblast at this point. So you have an excess of rank ligand, you get an excess of osteoclast activation, an excess of osteoclast activation leads to more bone resorption. And that's where you see the, the lytic lesions on your x-rays or your CT scans are from that rank ligand uh, release from the metastatic cells. Um, and you talked about uh, sclerostin a little bit uh, earlier, but um, uh, a new medication uh, out there, uh, very uniquely and conveniently named Romosuzumab <laughs> has been developed. What is Romosuzumab and, uh, and what role does it play in all of this? Yeah, so that's going to be a, a sclerostin antibody again. So, you know, you're trying to uh, inhibit sclerostin. So you want to... Uh, I mean, this is an antibody sclerostin. Again, the same thing at the end of the name is has that MAB, so you know it's a monoclonal antibody. But no, Romosuzumab is going to be for sclerostin. I don't know, maybe like Tony Romo. If you think Tony Robo wants you to be strong and have your bones good, maybe you can think somehow <laughs> of uh, Romosuzumab being a sclerostin antibody. Um. And I've seen some questions, and I guess it's also good to know how some of these different medications may be administered. Um, so how is zoldronic acid administered, one of those um, nitrogen-containing bisphosphonates? Uh, so it is, yeah, just like you said, it, it's the Z, so it's nitrogen-containing. And that's done as a yearly infusion. And some of them are yearly, some of them are monthly um, for all of these bisphosphonates. Uh, but the, the big one is the uh, zoandronic acid. And um, I guess this doesn't really, I guess, play a, a huge role in, uh, in the OITE and boards world because it's difficult to test on. But um, the, the good side is you get a yearly infusion of it and you're good for the whole year because these bisphosphonates bind to the mineralized bone and they just sit in waiting for an osteoclast to pick them up and then they kill that osteoclast. It's not like um, 
they go out searching for the osteoclast. They just bind to the bone and wait. The downside to it is um, for some of these fractures, it's actually useful for them to stop their bisphosphonates because you need osteoclast function for the bone healing process. So if a patient has a yearly infusion of zoandronic acid, it's not like you can tell them to stop taking their bisphosphonate for six weeks while their fracture heals. And so that's the, that's the downside to these um, lengthy infusions of uh, these medications is it's, it's difficult to stop them um, to, to help heal a fracture. Um, but uh, it is what it is. It's not, it's not something that'll be tested, but it's just useful to know. Uh, how, and then on the flip side, it's not a, a bisphosphonate, but how is denosumab ad administered? Yeah. So this is again, that mono, uh, monoclonal antibody to rank ligand just for a refresher. And this is, is administered every six months as a sub Q injection. And, uh, uh I, I remember I had to come up with some type, some type of mnemonics to remember, how these different things were administered because I saw it asked on the test question and I was like, man, we got to know all this stuff. Um, but <laughs> denusumab, if you think of uh, Danny, the denusumab dinosaur does dose injections yearly. So um, I don't know if that'll help anybody, but all the deeds, dose injections um, yearly. So every six months, sub-Q injections. Um, how is calcitonin administered? That is via an intranasal spray. Um so sniffing the uh, cocaine, calcitonin cocaine, <laughs> you know, I actually, I will use that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was another really one. <laughs> calcitonin isn't the first line. It's used when other therapies have failed. And um, it's, kind of, <laughs> it's kind of similar to, to going to, to cocaine once the uh, alcohol and, and marijuana no longer do it for you, you know. Um, but <laughs> all jokes aside, yeah, calcitonin is via an intranasal spray and that's how you're able to get it in that intermittent fashion that we, uh, that we, or no, that was teriparatide, excuse me. The denosumab is just via the intranasal spray and then teriparatide. How is that one administered? Yeah. So that's going to be a daily injection. Like, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's that, I mean, just every single day, just giving you a shot every day. Um, that's that recombinant PTH. So um, just know that those ways. So again, sulfonic acid is a yearly infusion. Denosumab is uh, every six months. Daniel does not, dinosaur goes and does his injections. And calcitonin is going to be intranasal spray. That's that cocaine calcitonin. Uh, this, this, you remember, it's intranasal. And uh, I think that'll that'll be it as far as kind of these osteoporosis and osteoporosis drugs, or at least what we'll cover in this OIT review. I'm sure there's many, much more information out there, but I think we can maybe transition to, uh, to some cartilage. What do you, how does that yeah. sound to you? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's entire clinics, um, that are osteoporosis clinics themselves, and you may have them at your institutions and all that. And it's actually useful for, uh, say you have a, 80 year old who got a hip fracture, you guys did a hemi on her and all that and, and go in and look and see if there's an osteoporosis clinic uh, in your either institution or in your area and get a referral for those patients because they will definitely cover all of the bases for them uh, 
very nicely, which is, which is nice. It kind of takes some of the pressure off of you to, to make sure that they're on these medications and have the osteoporosis clinic deal with them. But yes, yeah, totally agree. That is, yeah, that is, I think enough for an OITE and, and board's review of it. Um, and so, yeah, let's move on to, uh, to cartilage. Yeah. So this again, going big umbrella and then we'll go more specific as time goes on, but what are just the main types of cartilage that is found in the body? Uh, the one that we care about the most uh, would be hyaline cartilage for uh, covering the articular surfaces of uh, all these long bones and, and everything else. And then fibrocartilage is uh, more uh, at the bone and tendon interface. There's that transition that we'll talk about from muscle to musculotendinous junction to tendon to calcified tendon to bone. That's where that fibrocartilage is found, but it's also found in uh, the menisci. Um, then you'll have elastic cartilage, which is found in the trachea, and then epiphyseal cartilage, obviously found in the uh, growth plates of uh, kids. Yeah. And we we went over this uh, in our kind of bone development section, but um, what transcription factor designates towards cartilage? That's going to be SOX9. So remember, SOX9, RunX2 is going to be for bone. SOX9 is going to be for cartilage. And an easy way to remember this is put on your socks before you run. So cartilage forms before bone. So SOX is cartilage. Run is uh, RunX2 is bone. Now, what are the zones of articular cartilage and how are they oriented in relation to the joint line? This, I feel like this is almost always a question. Yeah, um, just like there's zones of the uh, like growth plate you that we, we talked about, you have zones of the articular cartilage. So, um, and these will be tested uh, either via showing a histology or describing the nature of the collagen and chondrocytes and asking you which zone of the cartilage are are these uh, components in. And so the superficial or tangential zone is the most superficial zone. It has the type two collagen fibers oriented parallel to the joint line. It has flat chondrocytes, a high collagen to proteoglycan ratio. And it is the only zone where articular cartilage progenitor cells have been found. Mm. And a lot of that just makes sense. Um, that if we're gliding, uh, think about you're kind of watching the inside of a joint glide on itself. You want those fibers closest to the surface to be parallel to the gliding surface rather than perpendicular. Um, but then you have the intermediate zone where the collagen is oriented more random or obliquely, and it's the largest zone. It has very round and plump chondrocytes and has an abundant amount of proteoglycans. And this intermediate zone is really just important for providing some of that compressive strength to the cartilage. And then you get the deep zone where the collagen is perpendicular to the joint line and it actually crosses the tide mark, which is kind of that anchor point for the cartilage. Uh, it has the highest concentration of proteoglycans and it has round chondrocytes oriented in columns, which um, 
is kind of opposite of the uh, growth plate. Uh, so these, the growth plate grows kind of towards the uh, diaphysis of the bone. These chondrocytes are oriented away from the from the epiphysis or into the to the cartilage itself. And then you have the tide mark, which is the mark that divides the non-calcified articular cartilage to the calcified remnant of the epiphysis. And it's only found in uh, moving joints and not at other cartilage bone interfaces. And then you have the subchondral bone. So uh, again, superficial, parallel fibers, flat chondrocytes, intermediate is random collagen, round, plump, large chondrocytes, deep is perpendicular uh, collagen and uh, stacked or column uh, chondrocytes. Tide mark is where you get non-calcified and calcified cartilage meeting each other. And then the subchondral bone is the most deep. Um, and then going back to the superficial layer, what is the most superficial layer of the articular surface also called? Yeah, so I, I didn't even know this, but lamina splendens, um, it has densely packed collagen fibers, uh, but no chondrocytes. So these, these fibers uh, resist the shear forces that are gonna be placed on the joint through range of motion, but uh, lamina splendens almost like a Splenda, but yeah, Lamina Splendens yeah. <laughs> is what uh, that, that most superficial layer of the articular surface is called. Now, what makes up the extracellular matrix of articular cartilage? Because, you know, like just with bone, we have extracellular matrix with bone that we talked about, the different proteins and osteocalcin, et cetera. Uh, we know we also have an extracellular matrix in cartilage. So what makes, uh, what makes that up? And then kind of what are some of those proportions? Yeah, so water is going to be the most abundant, making up around 70%. Um, it's more prominent at the surface, uh, and it helps with lubrication, and it's around 55 to 60% at the deeper levels. And uh, this is something that uh, it, it makes sense once you work it through, but uh, the deeper levels of the articular cartilage have a very high proteoglycan content. And I believe the uh, tide mark actually has the, the most proteoglycan content. And um, what that does is it helps pull in as much water as possible. So even though it, it's made up of less water overall it has a lot of proteoglycans to help pull that water from the synovial fluid and from the superficial surface down deep and just from knowing the fluid mechanics from physics water is an incompressible uh, substance when it's in a uh, fixed container and so what that does is it helps provide that compressible uh, strength to the articular cartilage. Um, collagen uh, makes up about 20% of the cartilage mass and collagen type two is the most prominent at 90 to 95%. Other types of collagen like five, six, nine, and 10 are present, but 
not nearly as uh, prominent as collagen type two. And then lastly, you're going to get those proteoglycans that I was talking about. And what they do is they provide compressive strength and act and attract water. Um, the three main types are keratin sulfate, chondroitin sulfate, and agrican. And they are produced by chondrocytes. So water, then collagen type two, then proteoglycans in that order are what make up the majority of the extracellular matrix of cartilage. Um, but we know that cartilage uh, gets damaged after like a intraarticular fracture or uh, an iatrogenic injury during a scope or something like that. Um, what, what type of cartilage forms after a full thickness articular injury? Yeah, so this is gonna be that fibrocartilage, and and this is this will come into play when we. I think we already did talk about some of these, like that cartilage restoration, like um, uh, well, like microfracture. When you do microfracture, for example, you're not going back articular cartilage, but you're getting that kind of that fibrocartilage. Um, that's gonna be what what forms after that full thickness articular injury. And just to go back to what you're talking about uh, beforehand of what makes up the extracellular matrix of articular cartilage. I feel like I've always seen a bunch of questions on these and it's always confused me of which one was up and which one's down. But I just wanted to highlight some of the things that you were just saying, like in um, like the water in the extracellular matrix is for some reason increased in arthritis, but decrease with normal aging. I don't, I don't have any good ways to think of that. I don't, like, you know, I don't, I don't know the, the logic behind it, but I guess if you just get older, you have less water, but if your bones start to hurt it, you have more water, I guess. I, I don't know, but uh, maybe that may just be a way to remember that. And then, yeah. and then um, those proteoglycans providing that compressive strength um that's a, another important thing and then definitely those deeper levels that that need that higher proteoglycan content um kind of helps pulling out as much water as possible i think i think they ask about that like giving us compressive strength if i'm not mistaken and then they ask about kind of the tensile strength and being some of those superficial layers i could be wrong but i think i feel like they've i've heard that or seen that written somewhere before yeah they'll um, for some reason they like, uh, I will cover it soon, but they like asking about decorin and they like asking about agrican. And the biggest thing about agrican is pulling in that water and the compressive strength. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, we just talked about fibrocartilage being formed after a full thickness carl injury. Where does cartilage get its nourishment from? Like, how does that you know, where does it, it's so far away from the rest of the body. Like where does it get, get its nourishment from? Yeah. Cartilage is a, a vascular, uh, structure. So it definitely relies on the synovial fluid and the subchondral bone for, uh, diffusion and exchange of nourishment and products of metabolism. And, um, just trying to make sense of all this in our, in our minds, but obviously if, uh, something is avascular, it doesn't get uh, a lot of oxygen delivered to it. So all of these chondrocytes are going to rely on anaerobic metabolism, so glycolysis, for their ATP production and, and production of their uh, metabolic uh, products. So um, that may come up, may not, but it's just something uh, to keep in mind that it doesn't have a lot of blood flow um so uh like a like a micro fracture it's not going to provide 
the blood and nutrients to produce new cartilage. It's just providing a scaffold for the fibrocartilage to form, uh, essentially, but normal cartilage is avascular. Um, and this is going to be kind of long-winded, so I don't know if you want to cover half of them, I'll cover the other half, or you just want to go yeah. all the way through, but um, you do have now. We, there yeah. are many different <laughs> forms of lubrication for the articular surface, and uh, they are all described and not always described in the most astute way, but we'll see if we can pass it along <laughs> to you guys. But uh, what are the forms of lubrication at the articular surface? So one form is going to be elastohydrodynamic. And if you just break it down, the, the, the word, it'll, it'll make sense. So again, elastohydrodynamic. So this is when you have elastic deformation of cartilage through dynamic joint function that's going to allow for a slight difference in the shape of the cartilage so again like elastic you know you have some deformation but not not like it doesn't get to this yield or breaking point which we'll talk about at some point in in one of these uh in one of these episodes but so again you have that elastic deformation of the cartilage through that dynamic joint function and that that allows for slight differences in the shape of the cartilage where the synovial fluid can form a boundary between those gliding surfaces. Um, so a fully congruent joint won't let a fluid boundary, um, won't let a fluid boundary to form between the surfaces. But so this is, is that elastohydrodynamic. Again, elasto, you're getting that elastic um, deformation of the cartilage and synovial fluid and can kind of, can, uh, can form a boundary between those gliding surfaces. And again, this is with these dynamic joints. Uh, the next one, uh, and again, this is actually my first time hearing or like reading about these, um, but this next one's going to be boundary, um, also known as kind of slippery surfaces where non-deformable joint surfaces have a fluid film only partially separating them and certain constituents of synovial fluid, you know, like such as lubricant or hyaluronic acid and um, surface activated phospholipid. Um, bound to the surface, they act as a boundary between uh, the two allowing gliding. So again, it was going to be slippery surfaces where a non-deformable joint um, surface has a fluid film that only partially separates them and they're in different kind of constituents of the synovial fluid um, that are going to be bound to the surface, uh, act as a boundary between the, the two allowing gliding. Uh, I will let you let you tackle the other, <laughs> other three uh, forms yeah, of uh, yeah, no, no problem. Um, then, uh, yeah, so I think that boundary and elastohydrodynamic are probably the main two that we um, will be tested on and, and hear about. But there's also uh, uh, lubrication called boosted lubrication, which is essentially pools of lubricant form between areas that are already in contact with each other. And this can be seen in uh, mildly damaged cartilage. So not full thickness cartilage lesions, but uh, kind of divots made in cartilage where lubrication forms between uh, surfaces that are further apart than others. And that helps provide a hydrostatic force um, that doesn't allow for complete compression across the, the parts that are actually in contact with each other. Um, then you have hydrodynamics. So it's a little bit different than elastohydrodynamic, whereas hydrodynamic is 
really just the gliding of joints creates a negative pressure and it pulls in synovial fluid between the surfaces. And um, I, I liken this, and if this is confusing to everybody, I apologize, but um, if you know how an airplane wing works, uh, the air flowing over the top of the airplane wing flows faster and is more turbulent, uh, causing a lower pressure to form above the wing, whereas the more laminar flow below the wing creates higher pressure. And so the airplane is able to lift because the higher pressure pushes towards the lower pressure. And it's similar to the gliding of joints that the more a joint glides and the faster it glides, it's going to create that negative pressure within the joint and want to pull the synovial fluid into that lower pressure area as opposed to the higher pressure area outside of the joint. And then the last one is uh, weeping, which is basically um, just like if you were to put your hand on a, on a wet sponge and push it down on the countertop, as an axial load is placed on the joint, some of that water that's stored in the joint or in the uh, cartilage uh, acting as that compressive force weeps out into the joint and creates a fluid barrier to help with um, the uh, uh, boundary formation and lubrication of the joint. And that plays a role in arthritis, which is what we're gonna tackle next, is because the, in our, an arthritic joint, the compressive strength is lost. And so water doesn't move as uniformly throughout a joint and it ends up losing that weeping ability uh, of the water because it just kind of, uh, it doesn't leave the articular cartilage in a uh, relatively routine fashion. It's just kind of blows out because the collagen and proteoglycans are not as robust as healthy cartilage. But um, moving now, on. Now, now uh, I, I did have a quick question, like regarding yeah. this, like how, um, how would this be asked? I'm trying to figure like, cause they never, they never just just like straightforward and with it and ask, well, what is we, well, maybe they will, but I always feel like it's, it'll be asked like, Oh, well, what, what is this joint type of like, it'll be like some tertiary um, way to remember this. So, so like, you know, elastohydrodynamic. So, you know, our, when we have the deformation that allows that, that fluid to form the boundary, like, well, how do you, I don't know if you've seen it, seen these asked or interpreted in a way, but like, what do we need to, I guess, know about this. I'm still not somewhat confused, but like boundary and elastohydrodynamic. If you ask me a question on it now, I'm still like, I don't know, you know, iffy, iffy. Yeah, so uh, I, I honestly, I think that it will, this will maybe just be one of those like fact type questions where it will basically just say, um, what is boundary lubrication and then it'll give you four choices and they'll talk about um is it the elastic deformation of cartilage through dynamic joint motion you'll be like no that's elastohydrodynamic uh, is boundary lubrication when uh water is uh kind of weeped out of the articular surface and into the to the joint to provide lubrication no that's weeping um, is it uh, 
the slippery surfaces where lubricin, hyaluronic acid, and surface-activated phospholipid are bound to the surface and act as a frictionless surface. Yes. So I think that it'll Uh, mostly be asked in like a, hey, do you know this or do you not? And it's, we'll cover this in the arthroplasty section, um, but uh, the opposite of lubrication is wear. And how I've seen the wear questions asked, which are more common than lubrication, but lubrication questions will still come up, is they'll basically just say, um, what is the most common type of wear in a total knee? And it'll just list off uh, third body, adhesive, uh, whatever else we'll, we'll cover in the future is And then you'll just say, oh, adhesive wear is the most common cause of wear. Or what is the most catastrophic? And that's third body wear. So I think it's just more of one of those, like, this is a certain fact that we want to test you on and make you feel horrible for not knowing it after the death. (laughs) Uh, And that's that's how they'll say it. Um, But yeah, it's just one of those that if if you know it, then perfect. If you don't, Will it drastically screw your orthopedic career? No. Um, I think <laughs> no, you'll still not. be a I think you'll still be a just fine orthopedic surgeon if you don't know the exact differences between the different forms of lubrication. But um, it's just one of those things that the board and the uh, people who make the OIT may want you to know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. That makes sense. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail Ortho Podcast. We hope you got a little bit of value from this episode. We're talking about some cartilage and articular cartilage and, and that whole uh, ordeal about kind of creeping and, or weeping and um, on this elastohydrodynamic stuff. So hopefully you all enjoyed uh, listening to that and um, hit that subscribe button and we will see you next episode.